0: Chapter 20 of Mabel Ross, the Sewing Girl. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 The Sail Loft. A building of four stories, three rooms of which were sewing rooms, and two hundred women and girls employed in each room. Six hundred hands in all had Mr. Barr employed. Six hundred souls to be raised by the something to be hoped for so essential to us all, to the better of which they were capable, if he would, six hundred souls to be crushed to the worst of which they were capable, as he chose. Did that one man ever feel the weight of those six hundred souls upon his soul? Did it ever occur to him what a vast field he had there for doing good? And that, just as he did not the good, he did evil. Even without limiting, as he did, the wages of those poor women to a pittance on which it was impossible, simply impossible, to live? No, surely no, for had the thought of this presented itself to him, he must have shrunk back, affrighted at the responsibility he took upon himself. Who shall attempt to sum up the evil given birth to and fostered through the wholesale wrongdoing of that one man? Who shall say how many more it shall reach, or how long it shall live? Into another generation, perhaps, perhaps longer. But if no mind of finite power can compute the dread account, there is one who can do the work, and who will do it. He will do it, because he has said so, and the great sum total brought up by him none can dispute. What a heavy reckoning this for one soul! God of might and justice, for one soul. The room into which Debbie Curtis and Hilda Ross were shown was so crowded that for many of the sewers there was no seat. Two hundred hands were here employed upon the making of wagon covers. These covers were fifteen feet in length and ten feet in width, with a seam up the middle and a finishing hem around the sides. Besides this, there were ten eyelet holes the price paid for the making of a wagon cover, was twenty cents. The sewing of the heavy sailcloth, of which they were made, necessitated a palm thimble on the hand of the worker, that is, a strap passed around the right hand with a thimble upon the palm. With this instrument, the sharp, three-sided sail-needle was pressed through the cloth. Before they had been half an hour so employed, Debbie and Hilda found that it was becoming quite impossible for them much longer to continue. Not only was the pain, inflicted by pressing through the great needle approaching the point of torture, but the muscles called into play by the effort were so weakened, through the unwanted tax upon them, that they refused longer to do duty, or did it so ineffectually that the work progressed at a snail's pace. Hours passed by and found the two hundred women and girls still busy at their work, silence upon every tongue, and a look of weariness and hopelessness upon every face. There was not here even the sound of the busy sewing machine to enliven the forced stillness. There was a tradition of a girl—she must have been a new hand—who one day attempted to sing at her work. How long the poor creature might have kept up a divertissement— which, through its novelty in the place, startled every worker in the room, it is quite impossible to say. For the foreman was not off duty, he never was, and he peremptorily hushed the song before it had progressed to the eighth bar. Still, it was something that a song had been attempted in that room. It was something to think about and to whisper about. Something, too, as a warning to any other, who, in momentary forgetfulness of her woes and the iron rule under which she toiled, might be tempted to raise her voice in the stillness of working hours. By and by came round the hour of twelve, and benumbed and stiffened hands resigned the needle, and wearied and stiffened limbs changed their constrained position for an upright one. There was an hour of respite from labor an hour in which the silence imposed upon speech might be suspended, and in which the exhausted frame might receive such refreshment as the small pay for its labor could procure. Of the two hundred sewers in the room, one only continued to ply her needle, making no preparation for repast like the rest, never even so much as lifting her eyes upon the sounding of the hour, or the stir made by her fellow laborers. She was a woman apparently of some thirty-odd years of age, of slight proportions and of peculiarly sad and subdued expression. She very soon attracted the notice of Debbie and Hilda, who, being strangers in the crowd, remained beside each other as they partook of their simple meal. "'You're wondering why she keeps on at her work,' said a young girl near them. "'Yes,' replied Debbie. "'Surely she must be tired and want her dinner like the rest of us.' Little doubt of that. But it's Martha Christie, and she's working so steadily to make her two covers a day. That, you see, will be the whole of forty cents to her. Such pay's bad enough for us girls,' she added in a whisper, and with a glance around to make sure the foreman did not overhear. And every girl of us knows just how little way it goes. But it's worse still for poor Martha. "'She's a married woman, and her husband's off to the war, and she left with three small children. "'She managed to get along while he sent her money, though it was but little. "'But she's had no tidings of him since the Battle of Pittsburgh Landing that he was in. "'He was down among the missing then, and she don't know to this day if he's dead or taken prisoner. "'She's entitled to her bounty whether he's dead or alive.' but though she's applied for it, through some reason she can't get it. It would be two dollars a week to her, and that would help her a great deal, while as it is, she has to make the whole support herself for the four of them. She had better work than this some time ago, and work she could do at home too, which was well on account of the children, but she got sick and lost it, and now is glad to come to the sail loft. She's only been here a week, but she lives near us, so I knew her before. My mother keeps her children while she's from home and took care of her, too, while she was sick. No one could help but want to do what they can for poor Martha Christie, but then we're poor enough ourselves and can't do much. She's only been making three covers in two days till now, but she's trying today to get along faster. The truth is, she sees starvation staring them in the face and is desperate. Poor thing, said Debbie and Hilda, in a breath. I wonder she doesn't apply to the parish, added Debbie. Surely a case like hers would be relieved. Perhaps she'd be willing, was the reply, for the spirit is pretty well taken out of her by all she has gone through. But then she made a promise to her husband never to throw herself on the parish while she could possibly make things hang together. He was a good mechanic, making good wages, and they lived quite comfortably only a year back, so, though of course he didn't think of her getting so down as she is, he had a sort of pride to keep his family from being called paupers. Debbie had a good supply of biscuits with her, and taking some in her hand, she approached the persevering workwoman. "'Take some of my biscuits,' she said. "'We're all eating, and you need it too.' Martha paused and glanced up at the speaker. The look from those dim, hollow eyes haunted Debbie for long after. "'Thank you. I have something here.' And Martha opened, in a quick, nervous way, a little basket beside her, only I didn't want to take the time to eat it. While speaking, she hurriedly took from the basket an old crust of bread. It contained nothing else, and commenced to eat." Debbie silently laid a couple of her biscuits on the knee of the woman and put the remainder into the now empty basket. Again, Martha lifted her eyes to the girl's face. It was a dim, blank look that said nothing unless it was a little surprise that a stranger should trouble herself about her. Hilda, who stood near, noticed that she only ate the crust, putting the two biscuits Debbie had placed on her knee into the basket along with the others. She was sure she was reserving them for the poor children at home. Hilda also noticed that, having hurried through with her crust, Martha more than once glanced from the work she had resumed in the direction of the water, and, believing she was reluctant to interrupt her sewing to go after some, the young girl brought to her a mug of it. She was repaid by such a look as the poor creature had twice bestowed upon Debbie— Martha drinking the contents of the mug so eagerly as to satisfy the donor how much she needed it. The day wore on, and the hour for closing up work came round. One after another the workers presented to the foreman their finished covers, which were severally examined and put aside, the inspector giving for each a ticket which entitled the holder to twenty cents. These tickets could any time be presented at the office, "'upon which the paying clerk would give for every one the sum named. "'All looked on with interest as poor Martha moved forward, "'dragging along her two covers, "'and we will believe there were few of her companions but rejoiced "'to see she had succeeded in completing them by the appointed hour. "'The foreman examined them as he had done the others. "'These won't do,' he then carelessly said, returning them to her. They must be done over again to get you your tickets. Martha stood as though turned to stone. She had evidently not dreamed of such a result for her efforts. She had overlooked the possibility of losing all by attempting to do too much. Her stitches proved too long for the required measure, and the foreman, whose business it was to see that they were of the required measure, in his businesslike way, rejected her work. Poor, poor thing, whispered Hilda to Debbie. How quite heartbroken she looks. Stand aside there and let others come up with their work, said the foreman again, in his businesslike way addressing Martha. And Martha took a hasty step, as though startled from a dream, and moved off with her two covers. What will you do? gently asked Debbie, who followed her to the place where she mechanically put them by. "'Rip them up and do them over again.' There was a different tone now in the voice. Neither did the words come in the brisk way of before, but slowly and heavily, the speaker's eyes bent not on Debbie, but on the two covers at her feet. "'More than double your work. What a pity!' "'Yes, more than double.' She turned from the covers and moved away, Debbie and Hilda, and not a few others, following with pitying eyes her fragile form, as she slowly left the sail-loft. The two or three following days found Martha in her accustomed place, busily engaged in ripping and resewing the rejected covers. She spoke to no one, looked at no one, but devoted the midday respite to the accomplishment of her task as she had done on the day of Debbie and Hilda first seeing her. Each day, however, the good-hearted Debbie slipped some of her biscuits into the little basket, which carried the poor crust designed for the laborer's dinner. The work was concluded at last, the forty cents were earned, and after that Martha's place was vacant in the sail loft. She is sick, replied the young girl who had spoken of her to the newcomers when questioned by them concerning her neighbor. The poor thing just used herself up on those two covers, and indeed, she wasn't fit to be working when she was at them. She's in bed now, too ill to raise her head, or to know well what's doing around her, so her pushing for a living for this time's over. The neighbors have been doing the might they could, and they've given notice about her, so most likely, tomorrow she'll be moved to the hospital, and the children put into the almshouse. Poor woman. How hard she has struggled against this very thing. She didn't want, with her children, to be paupers, you know. End of chapter 20